Welcome to Co-op Radio 100.5 CFRO. I'm Gennargio O'Sullivan, and today on the show we have co-host Woody Morrison and Savanaz. Uh, with the growing numbers of people who wonder whether any form of government is really viable any longer, we will be looking at alternatives. We'll discuss... First Nations self-governance, along with other alternatives that exist, for example, in the Baha'i community, which has a distinctive system of freely electing governing councils that reconsiders commonly accepted ideas about what democracy and the possibilities for achieving genuine justice. Woody. Oh, you got a big topic to talk about that should go on for at least maybe 14 days. <laughs> for 14 days? Yeah. Anyway, I just want to hear what all everybody has to say. That's the wrong one. That's mine. I can't hardly. Is that yours? Can you hear now? Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. Great. <laughs> well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having us, Gennarji and Witty. And uh, I think it would be really interesting to start off learning a little bit about um, different types of governance or systems uh, that have existed uh, traditionally uh, within your community. And just before this show started, uh, I was hearing a little bit about tribal systems from Woody. So I, I thought that was really interesting, <laughs> and I'd love to hear more about it. Mm-hmm. And that can lead us into talking about other models and systems. Okay, you keep turning my volume up. Anyway, uh, uh, <clears throat> When you when you live in a tribal system, uh, if you're on the prairies, everybody lived in one teepee, you know, the whole family, everybody. On ours, they lived in a single room house, and same with the East Coast. All tribes were like that. They had these huge families living in one room. And so one of the um, one of the problems with that is there's always a possibility of brushing against someone. In other words, causing someone some discomfort. So living in a tribal system was like a very delicate dance in which you you live your life avoiding causing other people's any discomfort. And if you do, there are tribal or what we'd call cultural imperatives that tell you how to restore balance. It's not saying, I'm sorry. It's not paying a penalty or penance type thing. It's, it's giving the giving of a gift. Uh, usually is the way it was done, and uh, it's more like a beehive. Everybody's focused on one thing, and that's the whole community. See, for the individual to survive, the family has to survive, and for the family to survive, the clan has to survive. And if the clan is going to survive, the entire tribe has to survive. So it's an interdependent system. And also, leadership... Uh, was something that was wasn't available to everybody. When a child was first born, they would watch that child very carefully and see what the how would you say uh, the temperament of that child was, and then that's how a name would come about. Mm. But also in the system of deciding issues, there was no debate. I don't know how many of you saw the movie um, Dances with Wolves, but there's a scene in the teepee where Wind in His Hair is very angrily arguing with the old people, the old men. 
that would never happen. You just, it would never happen. For one thing, the young people didn't speak, they listened. Because coming to knowledge is a long process, and when a person reaches a stage of wisdom, it's called that person understands his way through the land very well. In other words, this person is able to generate its own light. And so the, a talking circle was used, at least with Haidas anyway, but there were very specific rules on how you're going to do that. First, there's no person we would say is the leader or the chair. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you speak to whatever issue it is from your own point of view, what you know, what you understand, what you saw, but not what you heard. And you don't agree with anyone and you don't disagree with anyone. So be subjective, speak to it as to how it will affect you and your family too. And secondly, you got to bury the hatchet, leave it at that outside because this isn't a place to assign blame. And the third one was no walking away. No matter how upset or angry you become, stay and keep talking. And the fourth rule was a rule of respect called no stepping on lips, is kind of how we said. That means that the person speaking has an absolute right within the confines of these rules to speak. But also the person speaking would always have to be aware that someone else is going to speak. And if you pass, and it goes all the way around back to the initiator, and the initiator asks, does anyone wish to speak further? And a person raise their hand and say, I passed. Well, it doesn't matter if you passed. It don't go to you. It goes to the first person again. Because everybody has the same number of opportunities to speak. And if you pass, you give up yours. You can't get it back. You, The whole thing. And then when you get to the end of it, the initiator might say something like, this is what I heard. This is what I understand and would say what that was, and then the others would comment on it. So when you walked out of there, everybody knew exactly what everybody else knew, felt, believed. Now, in Haida, we had 21 or 23 crests or clans. Mm -hmm. And if 22 of them decide they're going to go to war and the 23rd one said no, there's no pressure to be part of it. There's, democracy doesn't work. It forces people to do things that goes against their interest. So if my clan said, no, we're going to stay home, there's no pressure, there's no nothing on the one that says I'm going to do something different. So a tribal system had to function in that way, and this is how, we're going to, this is how we survive the Ice Age, this is how we're going to survive global climate change, because we have to trust each other, whereas the other one, when you start using political maneuvering, nobody trusts anyone. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. And that's what we've been witnessing, I, I, I think, in the world today, uh, that the political systems that are in place uh, have limitations. And uh, they're not working the way uh, that um, people are hoping they, they, they should work. Uh, they're not working as well. And we're, we're seeing how they're failing many communities. And what's interesting about what you're describing with the tribal system is that there's a, a consultative uh, process that... There is an equity um, and equality in, in listening to everybody's voice um, um, to come to decisions and to see what best serves the community. Um, uh, we have a special guest here today. Her name is Jelena Bighorn. She serves on the local spiritual assembly of the Baha'is of Vancouver. Hi, Jelena. Hi. 
Um, uh, just make sure your mic is on. I couldn't hear. Yeah, we'll just... Well, Delena, she serves on the local spiritual assembly and uh, of Vancouver. And we today we're going to hear a little bit about how the Baha'i uh, administrative system is structured. So it's one model of a different type of administrative system. Um, uh, there are different ones that exist in the world, and this one kind of presents a different way of looking at democracy, a different way of achieving justice in a community. And um, uh, we'll hear a little bit more from Jelena now about how it's all structured and who she is. So maybe first you can start off with telling us who you are, Jelena, a little bit about your background and then your involvement in the local spiritual assembly. Okay. So thank again, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Jelena Bighorn. I am Lakota. I come from the Fort Peck Sioux Reservation in Montana, but my family has lived on Vancouver Island for many years, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with the area and definitely a visitor like many others. Uh, maybe a little background too on the Baha'i faith. For many of the listeners, this may be the first time that they're hearing that term. The Baha'i faith is an independent religion that was founded in Iran in the 1800s by a, a, who we call the prophet. His name is Baha'u'llah, the manifestation of God. And Baha'u'llah brought a new message uh, for the world. And many traditions in the past, including my own, uh, had foretold that this messenger would come. In fact, one of our most revered and, and uh, holy men, Black Elk, in the 1800s, had a dream that two men from the East would rise with a daybreak star between them. And it's very interesting for my family as as they investigated the Baha'i faith to learn how important the the imagery of the daybreak star is in the Baha'i faith. Many of the writings refer to that. And there were actually two uh, manifestations of God, the Bab and Baha'u'llah, that came together. Uh, But Baha'u'llah is the most recent one. So in the Baha'i faith, much of what is revealed is uh, is for this day. Many of the teachings, the, the spiritual teachings, have remained the same throughout all of the messengers. Uh, but it's the, the 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 new social teachings, and I think that's what we're touching on today, about about governance. Uh, so in particular, there are two branches of Baha'i governance. One is called the appointed arm, and the other is called the elected arm. The elected arm is probably one that we're m- more familiar with in in our country, with a country that values democracy. Uh, these individuals uh, amongst the Baha'is, those who over the age of 21 are elected to serve for nine years on what's called a local spiritual assembly. And it's a silent vote. People do not campaign. And there there are many beautiful writings that Baha'u'llah revealed about the qualities that that these leaders should have, mature experience, uh, compassionate, be be someone who has offered service to the community. And these these individuals are elected to serve for a a one-year term. And it's very interesting having lived in this Western society and how leaders are put in positions of power and it becomes uh, all about the ego, all about the individual. But actually, these nine members would long to serve each other and long to serve their, their community. And if anything, they're, they're all trying to get underneath the other so that they can rise other people up. So these, these nine members uh, serve for one year, as I mentioned, and I, I was elected. This is my, the third term that I've uh, been serving in this capacity. Amongst uh, the community, every year there are a certain number of delegates that are 
elected in a similar fashion by secret ballot. There's no campaigning. And these delegates will go to elect the National Spiritual Assembly. Again, nine members uh, from the Canadian community. And there's 171 delegates that will go in and elect them. And they serve for another year term. So that's the elected arm. And the individuals who serve on that, they serve as a body, not as individuals, actually. It has the, the local uh, spiritual assembly has all the legislative and executive powers, but the, the group has to work as a group, not as an individual member. You'll rarely hear an assembly member speaking on behalf of themselves. So that's the elected arm. And then to balance, because we have to have balance in this world, there's the appointed arm. So those friends who are very learned, who have great experience, who are appointed by these elected institutions to serve sometimes for a five-year period, as what we call counselors. And they will serve for the continent, and, and they're allowed to, to move as an individual, but they don't have any of the executive or legislative powers that an assembly would have. But they have that freedom uh, to go to different communities, to share the learning, and they're just not inhibited by that, that structure. But it, I almost like to think of them like the bees, they're, you know, they're free, they're able to go to areas and they pollinate and they bring, uh, bring the, the latest uh, uh, news and activities that are going on in other parts of the country. And underneath them, we have the auxiliary board members who will serve in, in one particular region. And it just so happens that my husband is serving in that capacity. So for five years, he's uh, going around the lower mainland, encouraging Baha'i activities to take place. And uh, yeah, so these two arms, are, there's much to understand. The Baha'i writings are quite, uh, quite expansive. Uh, so I myself consider, you know, I'm still learning and understanding how these institutions work together. Thank you so much for sharing with us.
Welcome to Co-op Radio 100.5 CFRO. We have ourselves a broken record. It's like comes in the form of a CD. So that was uh, Listen to Our Heartbeat. Woody, it's nice to see you here again. Geez, I always like enjoy coming here. I never know what's going to happen, even when things are planned out. You know, uh-huh. I think that's what I like about it is people are spontaneous. Yeah, open-minded, yeah. organic. <laughs> We're all grassroots here. And we go with the flow at Co-op Radio. Always different all the time. Today we have a really cool guest in the house. Sarvanas is co-hosting with us. And mm-hmm. Woody Morrison and I am on the board. Well, it's great to be here. Yeah, uh, we heard a little bit <clears throat> from Woody about tribal systems of governance, uh, which was very interesting. Uh, and, and thinking about different models of, uh, of governance that exist in the world, um, seeing as right now many um, political systems or systems of government are, are failing a lot of uh, communities and societies. So uh, we heard also from Jelena Bighorn, who's a member of the local spiritual assembly of the Baha'is of Vancouver. And she described for us uh, how the system, uh, the administrative order is uh, they call it in the Baha'i community, or the, the governance system works on a local, national, and international uh, level. And um, we heard a little bit about her background as well, uh, being a Lakota, uh, and uh, we'd love to hear some more uh, about, about your background, Jelena. Yes, thank you. So, as I had mentioned before, uh, my tribe is the Fort Sioux uh, Fort Peck Sioux and Assiniboine uh, tribe in eastern Montana. My family was living in Oregon uh, when I was younger, and they were working at the last Indian boarding school that exists in the United States. But both my parents were uh, administrators. And then we ended up moving to Vancouver Island uh, so that they could work at the that w- what was then the Baha'i International High School that was there on Vancouver Island. And that's how I came to be in this part of the world and it's been a it's it's for me it's been much of a learning curve because as much as I find indigenous people have similar spiritual uh, beliefs each culture is unique unto itself so what what is true for plains people and their understanding uh, there's also another understanding here on the west coast and I think that uh, the way that we look at that is that what the creator has made is much, is too complex for any one tribe to understand. So we have to bring all of these understandings together. So I've uh, really enjoyed being here and learning from the elders uh, in this part of the world. And uh, we were able to hear from, from Woody earlier um, about some of those systems. One of the things about <clears throat> the tribal system, I think, it works fine as long as you have a relatively small population. But when the population begins to grow, say like my Cherokee side, my mother's side of the family, uh, they had written language, um, they had their own legislative assembly, I guess, and a few other things. But one of the things that seemed to be fairly consistent, at least with the Six Nations and with us Haidas, is that the grandmothers had the veto that if they didn't like what us men did, it didn't matter how smart we thought we were. If they said no, it's no. <laughs> That's no no appeal. But on the other hand, what women did was none of our business. Uh, I didn't ask about, I was asked sometimes, you know, like about 
the woman's rite of passage. I don't know anything about it because it was none of my business and I would never even think to ask. Uh, even the ceremony, when we do the ceremony where the four promises made is I'll always protect you, I'll always provide for you, I'll always walk alongside, beside you or alongside you, and I'll never interfere in your search for your own special place. And those were the four four promises. And so when we get the governance, uh, then it begins to get a little bit different because we did have female chiefs. If there was no male in that line that was, uh, was we'll say, old enough to take that, that role, uh, so it wasn't unheard of. But see, if a woman took the role of chief, she had to step down and sit beside the men. In other words, it was a demotion because now she couldn't be part of the veto part of it because now she's sitting with the men. So that was different. And uh, when you live in a tribal system, everybody has the same history, uh, cultural imperatives. But when you move away from that system, then you're bound by ideology is primarily the prim- primary um, binding force, whether it's it's a religion or it's it's economics or some other social system. So, it, like you say, we can't. We're not all the same. Um, and it, I guess I saw somebody sent me a um, a quote from Baha'i because I'd said, you know, we're like fingers of one hand. We're all different, but we're connected to the same heart. So. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. We're looking at the similarity of what you what you said uh, uh, last week when we had Dr. Lee Brown on about being all the uh, the fingers of one hand and a similar uh, quote um, in 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 the Baha'i writings uh, from Baha'u'llah that describes that maybe exact same. Maybe I got it. Maybe I got it from uh, Jelena's uncle. <laughs> I've known Phil since 1986. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a very wise man. He knows many things. <laughs> yeah, I maybe one thing to mention. Uh, I mean, while you're, you're you're talking about these quotes, one thing that that I really admired about the Baha'i Faith as I was learning about it was the accessibility that people have to the writings of Baha'u'llah to the the Prophet founder. Uh, there is no uh, clergy system in the Baha'i Faith. Because, in maybe in previous uh, dispensations, most people were illiterate, and they would need somebody to read the text for them on their behalf. Uh, luckily, we're living in an in an age where most people have access to education; it can learn to read in whatever language that they were born into, so they can access access the the writings of Baha'u'llah. So there is there's no need for a clergy, a, a, a more learned person than myself, to interpret the word for me. So it's it's very interesting, I think, for people who are are familiar with that that particular religious system when they encounter the Baha'i Faith and they're wondering, well, who who is it that is in charge? Who is it that that has you know the authority? But really, we'd have to flip the entire uh, administrative order upside down because those people who are elected or appointed to these positions, as I had explained earlier, they really do see themselves as the servants of the community, and it's it's the community. The families that are, if we had to look at it uh, in that way, we, they would be on the top, and these other individuals would be on the bottom, uh, there to to sacrifice whatever it is needed 
on behalf of the community. And that I really found similar to what I understood of our own culture, that people who had certain capacity to be in leadership positions, they didn't see it as their something that it, um, they didn't own it in a way that it belonged only to me. Actually, it's, it's a capacity given by the creator, and I have to learn how to use it for the benefit of others. Um, also, something that uh, I, I've come across in, in being an Indigenous person, but also being a Baha'i, is another similarity is how structured the, the Baha'i faith is. I, I just mentioned just a little bit about this elected and appointed arm, but in, in our culture, the society was very structured. We Each member could be a part of a certain group that, that uh, had very particular tasks and certain ceremonies that could only be performed by certain individuals. And I, I certainly feel that in the wider culture, there's a feeling that indigenous people are just free flowing. They're one with the woods. <laughs> they just, you know, pick up a stick and have a ceremony with it. But absolutely not. I, I have no right to put on a pipe ceremony or to put on a sun dance. I mean, there, there are protocols that have to be followed. And much of them, you, you don't teach them. You, you watch and you learn and you observe. That's what children did for the, you know, their younger years. They watched these older people put on these ceremonies. So I think from my understanding, Indigenous people are very familiar with having a structured uh, religious, well, spiritual life. Uh, maybe the term religious and spiritual, we don't always mix together so much, but uh, we understand protocol. We understand that there's there's a, a system in place. Yeah, and it's it's uh, interesting to look at those parallels of of how uh, a community accesses their spiritual side, their spiritual selves, and how many commonalities there are in different cultures. And also a reminder that as Baha'is, when we share our faith, uh, uh, and Jelena mentioned that there is no clergy in the Baha'i faith, but there's also um, uh, no attempt to proselytize or convert. And this is very much uh, for the individual to investigate. We have a principle of uh, independent uh, investigation of truth. So as we share about our faith, uh, we also want to share that uh, we are here to answer questions if anybody has the questions, uh, but we're definitely not <laughs> trying to proselytize or pontificate or anything like that, um, but bring in principles that can be adopted by anyone of any faith and ideas that will hopefully open people's minds up to new possibilities and ways to create unity within a society. And we've been hearing a lot about uh, collaboration, consultation, consultation in, uh, in governments, uh, governance systems that are very different than what we're witnessing today in society. And here we just recently had an election. I was speaking earlier. We also have Cyrus Greenall in the studio with us today. Hi, Cyrus. Um, I, I don't know if his mic's on. We've got to get his mic on. <laughs> I'm here. Hi, hi, Cyrus. Hi there. Uh, and and we were also speaking about how you know right now everybody's sort of in the thick of partisan politics, and and uh, the limitations that come along with that, and uh, what we're listening to also from Woody and Jelena about other types of processes that are much more collaborative and unifying, and consultative, consultative. Yes. Yeah, and you know, like Sarvados mentioned. Um, we you know we just had an election in in BC. Um, I know my my friends in Alert in Alert Bay, the Namgis people, just elected their chief, and um, we see you know in the wider community a lot of divisiveness in politics. 
Um, often it's about um, right and wrong and us and them. And I think a lot of people have become, you know, disenchanted uh, with politics because of this. And, you know, like Jelena spoke for Baha'is, and I think for, you know, the, the at least the First Nation communities that I've been exposed to, that in their origins, the spirit is of oneness, um, not of division. That, in fact, actually having, having different opinions does not need to be a source of division. It actually be, can be a source of unity. Um, so there's a quote I was going to share, which I think is really uh, powerful in the Baha'i writings. And it says, uh, this is from Abdu'l-Baha, who is the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith. And he said, the, the shining spark of truth cometh forth only after the clash of differing opinions. So, in fact, it's not about, um, you know, all people having the same ideas. Um, that doesn't bring forth truth. Um, it's, a, it's actually, in fact, from people having, you know, different opinions. And, you know, maybe, Jelena, you can tell us about, you know, your experience on the local Baha'i Assembly in Vancouver. And what, what does that look like? So if you have different opinions, how do you actually still have unity? Because, again, we look in, you know, for example, in our own province even, and different opinions often lead to such division and conflict. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's... Luckily, we have many writings to draw upon uh, related to the topic of consultation and how, how does that that look. Uh, each individual, of course, is free and encouraged to have their own unique insights and to bring them to the table. And what I've found helpful in the assembly meetings is, is we try to imagine that there's an object in the center of the room. And we're trying to figure out what that is. And from eye angle, it, it looks in a certain way, has a certain shape. But from across the table... It has a very different look, and I have to accept that I don't see the entire picture. And so each person can can share their perspective, and through that we try to see that there is unity in that diversity. That there is a common thread that can that that flows between all of the ideas, and that there are certain principles that we can remain focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, one place where I saw this consultation happening on a national scale, which was really, really awe-inspiring to witness, was the recent national convention where the 171 delegates from around the country are invited to elect the, the nine members of the National Spiritual Assembly. We gathered in Toronto at the uh, Toronto Baha'i Center, and there were many days, it was a four-day-long event, where the, the friends gathered together, uh, we greeted one another with such love and compassion, joy to be together in the same space. We deepened on many of the Baha'i writings about the status of the world. What, what is it that, uh, what tools that Baha'is can offer? Uh, what are the positions? What are the, these leadership positions? What do they mean? What do they imply? And then the actual voting process was so sweet and moving. At the very beginning, that the ballot box, it's a very beautiful uh, wooden box, is, is held up and it's shown that it's empty. Then one by one, the delegates are called by name to come up to the front. And I don't know that if everyone in that room realized that what they were doing was a ceremony. But I think myself, my brother, and my mother, we recognize that this, this is what people want to come back to, this, this a sacred ceremony. So one by one, the friends would come up, walk very you know reverently, and put their ballot into the box. And then they'd return to their seat. And name after name was called. And at the end, that feeling that overcame the room was so moving that everyone 
was in tears and clapping and cheering that we had fulfilled the sacred duty to elect these nine members. And once the names were tallied and, and the, those friends were called up to the front, they stood there with such humility. Most of them wouldn't look up from the ground. And they had their hands clasped in front of them and they were, they were looking down because they, they recognized the responsibility that they have uh, to work as a unit, to work as a group. You know, let, let me ask then, you know, you're electing these people, but, you know, as you mentioned before, the, you know, there's no campaigning in the Baha'i faith um, and, and votes are done in secret. You're not meant to share your vote. So how do you even know who to vote for if they're <laughs> not campaigning? And this is, you can elect any Baha'i across the country. Um, so how do you know who to vote for? Often, you know, we have to look to the news. We have to, um, you know, people have to promote themselves. Mm-hmm. So how does it work in this system? Yes, it's a very mysterious process. And we, every year, it seems we consult on that, <laughs> at how, how do we do this responsibly? And what we understand is that as delegates, we're elected several months before the actual convention. And we're, we're helped to understand that it is our responsibility to meet the individuals that we, we're electing. So in, in most cases, I, mean, I can't speak for anyone else, but you, you vote for people that you know. And in that sense, there is no, there's no battling for votes. There's no, well, I'm just going to vote for this one person because I think they're likely to get elected. It really does come from, from the spirit. And we say prayers beforehand and we allow the creator to, to help guide us in that decision. So prayer is really much, uh, very much the foundation of this entire process. That's beautiful. There's one quote I also wanted to share. I thought for me, I was it was so um, you know unintuitive in a way. I think different from our our you know typical culture because often we're trying to you know vie um, to express our opinion and that my opinion is right and someone else's is wrong. And there's a beautiful quote about unity, and it says, um, "Blessed are they who are the means of making unity among the friends, and pity on those who, in the right or wrong, are the cause of discord." So. This idea that it's more important to have unity than to be right or wrong. That um, you may think your idea is, is better, and it may be true, but in fact, um, it's most important to have unity above all else. Yeah, you're going to have to keep facing your mic. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, what, when you're talking about unity, um, we have a term for that... Um, I guess it's called Dikudangai Tlatska. That means my mind is strong for you because you stand there. Uh, And unity has to be something. Well, it's like I work for the Vancouver Aboriginal Child and Family Services Society as a part-time worker, as a family support elder, and also as a contract worker. But one of the values is belonging. And belonging is when you're so pleased with being someplace, it makes you so happy, you want other people to join you, and you in, you invite them in. And so when we look at things like that, and also the voting, for me, is a very personal thing. I don't care which party it is. If I don't like the person in my writing, I'm not going to vote for him or her. So I think we have to really look at what our own, what our values are, and do these people really represent those values? And whereas, with you, if you're in the Baha'i faith, you're not worried about what their economic principles are, or whether there's some 
political ideology. It's more, um, are we bound together by, by some common belief or way of living? And so that's where tribes function, too, is that uh, my grandfather's younger brother belonged to the Baha'i faith, he and one of his one nephew, but he never talked about it. Uh, to him, it was his business, and so I never asked him either. Uh, I guess Baha'is don't usually talk about it much unless you ask. So I I was house-sitting for a cousin, and I was mentioned to Lee. Uh, at UBC, she was working on her doctorate in education. But anyway, she she was uh, she's a member of the Baha'i faith. She lives in Seattle, and... Um, she used to take me to all the feasts and meet everybody, but nobody ever talked to me about it. Like there was no trying to convert me, like like was you were saying. There's nobody out there doing that, and I was just curious, you know, because I'm comfortable in in the way I believe and the things I feel, and so on the other hand, other people have the same right. It's not up to me to say anyone is wrong because if I say you're wrong, I'm saying I'm right. So unless we can start accepting other people as human. See, in Haida, we, we have a word, um, hot eye, which means uh, like human. And we call ourselves at hot eye, but sometimes we... we, we uh, like, for example, we'll say Tlingit people, that's Tlagas Hatai. So we always put that word on there to let them know that this is a community of, of humans who are of a different nationality. They speak a different language. But beyond that, uh, even like Europeans, Ya'at Hatai, these are people of the Iron Knife. It goes back to when the Spaniards came to our country and the guy was sticking his sword in the ground. They were wondering, what's the matter with that guy trying to dig clams with a long knife? He was claiming the land for Spain. <laughs> so, yeah, what you're saying, though, you know, about how that that um, that system of electing people is, I think you're more concerned with the values and maybe the morality of that individual. Does this person truly uh, represent the 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 values and the standards of what it, of who we are rather than does this person believe in balancing the budget or <laughs> you know buzzwords so i can i can understand how that would work i think it's also important to point out what you were saying about how people come to spiritual understanding or connection with their creator or just uh uh, peace uh, come to peace of mind about their existence in many different ways, and and that's also a fundamental teaching and principle of the Baha'i faith that um, there there are many lamps, right? But the light is radiating forth from those many lamps. The light is the same, but um, there are different lamps, and all of those must be accepted and embraced. Um, there's a beautiful quote that says, "Man must be a lover of the light, no matter from what day spring it may appear." He must be a lover of the rose, no matter in what soil it may be growing. And he must be a seeker of truth, no matter from what source it come. Attachment to the lantern is not loving the light. Attachment to the earth is not befitting 
but enjoyment of the rose which develops from the soil is worthy. So I think that we're all trying to keep that in mind as we're talking that I know in my own world and and my friends, I have friends from many different faiths and backgrounds. I have atheist friends, agnostic friends, and all of them are wonderful people who, you know, uh, embody so many uh, wonderful values and and virtues and characteristics. Uh, So it's... um, it's great to learn from one another and, and see the diversity that exists. That light, what my uncle told me, he said, always travel into light. Mm. But it can also have some practical application. So when we traveled by canoe and you're going to make a journey, you always start early in the morning because then it gets lighter as you're traveling. You start in the afternoon and it gets dark. In the morning, it doesn't matter if it's raining you open your eyes, you're moving into light. So you, you carry that with you. And even when when we end a prayer and we say, my spirit says so too, it's said with a very light heart hmm. because it the ego gets out of the way when you're happy and it doesn't interfere with uh, your sense of well-being. So I guess yours is like ours. Ours is older. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> This is a really, really awesome show and gives us so much food for thought. Uh, Yesterday, we were able to put the paddle to the water at the Paddle Up Ceremony in uh, Kate's Park. (laughs) Territory at Kate's Park. And that was a really beautiful journey because what it did for me, Woody, like after all these years, is it reconnected me to the water in ways that uh, is really important to me because I'm from Alert Bay. I lived on the water when I was adopted. I went up and down the coast on the Princess Patricia, right? So that was a really great journey for me to go on and then to be able to bring my daughter there with me. And that, for me, is the new light. And also, not it also gave me um, more reasons to live and protect Mother Earth and to create that connection. And so we've been posting this show and other shows, uh, live streaming it uh, from Co-op Radio 2014 Wall Street. And today we're talking about self-governance and uh, some of uh, and how it relates to First Nations people as well. But uh, while we've been doing this, people have been making comments. Uh, Takaya Blaney's uh, father, for instance, says, what does self-governance and religion have in common? That's his number one question. And another is, uh, um, is self-government a Western concept? Self-determination and sovereignty is a huge desire with Indigenous people. However, to be self-governance, the Indigenous people have to adopt and the colonizer's government structure at this point. And then the last question I, I guess he has is, is that about religion? And, you know, and how does this all fit into reconciliation? So many questions, Mr. Blaney. Maybe Jelena can comment on a few of those questions as well. Oh, those are fantastic. You really got my mind (laughs) turning um, about the possibilities. Uh, One thing that I can share uh, about maybe a bit of the Baha'i perspective is that the the community, there's the community and the, the individual and the institutions. And we, they're called the three protagonists. These are the three bodies that, that move the world, essentially. So the individual has certain uh, 
certain rights and capacities, you know, things that you can do as a, as a person, your, your innovation, your creativity, and you function as an individual, your insight comes as an individual, but then you also have to function as a community. We have to work together to make, to make this world what it can be, right? To, to really release the capacities that the individual has, you know, in families, you could look at the family as the, you know, the smallest unit of the community, what you learn from one another, what you, um, what you're able to bring to the family. Then on the, another level that we have is the institutions that help to guide the community. Those individuals who with mature experience can, uh, with understanding of the history and some vision of where we're going can also offer that insight. So we've got these three entities working at the same time. So in relation to self-government, I, for my own understanding uh, as a high school teacher, I actually teach uh, BC First Nations 12 and that's one of the main chapters actually about self-government and trying to understand can we reconcile that uh, what we understand as Indigenous people with the system that's been imposed upon us. And it's interesting to see from the young people, I think they're very wise. They, they see that they, don't, they aren't really compatible at all. That the way that Indigenous people, or at least in my tribe, uh, the way that we, we function, it's, it's such an organic system. Just like I described the individual, the communities, and, and the institutions. It's all organic. It's all based on Mother Nature. And we're trying to get back to those kinds of systems. Anything that's been imposed or that's been too fully, uh, you know, man-made, it's going to have a lot of faults with it. So it's it's not the best answer because I'm just an individual, right? I need I need to be in a consultative space to, to hear other ideas and to see what that common thread is. And that's how a community would move forward. And an institution could help guide us in a way, but uh, those three work together. Thank you. And, uh, do you have anything to add? Well, I, I was the uh, Assistant Tribal Operations Officer for the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, General Area Office in Alaska. And um, so the tribal governance that was put on the tribes in the states is quite different from Canada. In the 1930s, there was a painting showing, depicting, a, a, I guess you'd say, a prairie Indian on a horse. The horse's head was hanging down. The man, the rider, his head was hanging down. And the, the painting was titled End of the Trail. And some well-meaning white people saw that and thought that Indians are disappearing. We're going to have to do something to help them. So they enacted what was called the Indian Reorganization Act. And in that act, they, they made, they put together some model constitutions. And so each tribe was, if they chose to govern themselves, could do whatever they wanted with that constitution to make it work for them. And the second part of it was a revolving loan fund of $25 million. So tribes could incorporate a business at home, the people uh, set up uh, a cannery, a salmon cannery, and bought some fishing boats and eventually paid off the loan. And as the loan was paid off, it was go back into that revolving loan fund so other tribes could do the same thing. And uh, it began to sort of break down to where it became more of a political function rather than one of, of restoring balance. Yet at the same time, 
it began to empower people on, especially on reservations. See, on reservation, the tribe owns every teaspoon of land on, within the boundaries, whereas here in Canada, the reserves are owned by the crown. And so, but you start running into all kinds of things with Indian law, and that was one of the things I studied when I was in law school. But the tribes have their own court system, like at home. They handle Indian child welfare uh, and, and a few other things. But what the real problem is, is there's a tension between the values of a cash economy and that of a tribal system. In a tribal system, there's automatic trust. You just you trust everybody. You share. You help every, help people get where they're going, and you give back. In a cash economy, you don't trust because somebody will cheat you. You don't share because they'll end up with more than you. And the only way to the top is you got to look out for number one. And you can never have too much. So those are the, the competing values. And uh, so how do we reconcile those those tensions? And I think partly what it is is... Um, people are beginning to find those common threads that bring people together to where now instead of fighting each other see if I w in, in a tribal system uh, there are finite boundaries that define what or who Mahida is but within those boundaries are an infinite number of possibilities and so if I want a, a very good carver and I want to really really excel at it people will help me they'll lift me if I fall down, they catch me. But on this system, if I want to be the world's greatest actor, I'm going by myself. And when I get to the top, I discover there's nothing there. <laughs> and if I, if I fall down, ain't nobody catch me. So it's one of how do, we, how do we begin to function again as human rather than as mankind, as, but instead as humankind. So anyway, those are just some of the questions to which I doubt if we'll ever find answers. But I think the important part is if people are willing to ask those questions and address it within themselves. Because reconciliation has to come from inside me. I have to reconcile myself to where I can start recovering my own identity. Because if I expect people outside to, to fix everything for me, I'm I'm a slave as long as people are fixing things for me. All so. right. You've been listening to Co-op Radio 100.5 CFRO with Woody Morrison, Sarvanaz, and Jelena Bighorn. Thank you for joining us. Cyrus.